Welcome to this BGSM podcast, where you've tuned in to listen to Dr. Jeremy Lewis, a consultant physiotherapist from the United Kingdom. Jeremy is a leading expert in the area of shoulder pathology, and is full of great tips for you, the listener, to help your patients overcome shoulder pain. I'd like to thank our friends at Functional Media for allowing us to use parts of their extended interview with Dr. Lewis to create this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Can you describe each hypothesis, how it started, and what the research supports? The first one being shoulder impingement. The idea of subacromial impingement syndrome, the hypothesis surrounding it, was first introduced to the literature in around about 1972 by Charles Neer, American orthopedic surgeon. And, and his hypothesis was that 95% of all rotator cuff pathology is caused by irritation by, by the acromion. And uh, it's very interesting for any clinician interested in the shoulder to go back to the 1972 and 1983 papers, because what you'll, what you'll recognize is that these aren't really research papers. I guess in today's terms, we might call these blogs in the sense that it's somebody with a, a lot of clinical uh, experience and a lot of, a lot of clinical mileage writing down what his thoughts are in terms of what's causing this very common problem. So the, um, the idea of impingement, this irritation by the acromion, really took force and a lot of people then assumed that it was the, the, the cause of the majority of shoulder problems. And, and Nia's hypothesis was that if conservative treatment, exercise therapy didn't work, that the best thing to do would be to, to um, remove the, the offending bit of bone, the acromion, through either open procedure or what more recently has become closed arthroscopic procedures. However, a lot of the original theories in terms of um, the acromion causing the damage have not been necessarily supported in terms of where the damage is actually observed in the tendon, not supported by uh, serious uncertainties about the, the relationship between the fact that you can do exercise and get just as good results with exercise as you can with surgery, and that's been shown in in a large number of studies now that have followed patients for one year, two years, five years, and, and even longer. So the, a lot of the hypotheses are, are not well supported. So there's an assumption that, that the surgery is, is curative, but there's a very substantial possibility that the surgery is a placebo. We know that um, when pain is the patient's main complaint, that invasive procedures such as surgery are more likely to be to placebo effect. We also know that following the surgery that many patients will rest for maybe six weeks, maybe 12 weeks, relatively rest after the procedure, which means that the surgery is slowing the shoulder down. And one of the main treatments for someone who's got a tendon-related problem or muscle tendon-related problem is, is actually sh- slowing the shoulder down and then doing a graduated exercise program. So another uncertainty about the surgery is, is it just slowing the shoulder down in order for a person to gradually rehab the shoulder? So there's uncertainty about placebo, there's uncertainty about the actual mechanism of what the surgery is doing. We know that there's research that says there's no relationship between um, the acromial size and symptoms. Uh, there is a relationship between acromial size and tears, But there's another problem because there's a very poor correlation between actually having a tear observed in imaging and symptoms. So many people will have uh, rotator cuff tears but no symptoms coming from them. 
You just touched on rotator cuff tears as well. Are there any other hypotheses surrounding tears that you'd like to discuss? Well, a lot of people will be given a diagnosis of bursitis or rotator cuff tendonitis or rotator cuff tendinopathy, which sort of implicates the tendon-related structures, but we don't really know where a patient's symptoms are coming from, and it's, it's hypothesized that it might be coming from the tendon tissue, the bursal tissue. The term that I like to use and the term I publish uh, published with is, is a term called rotator cuff-related shoulder pain, which covers the muscle, covers the tendon, covers the bursal tissue, includes the, the soft tissues around the shoulder, because we're not really certain where a patient's symptoms are coming from. And because of uncertainty regarding imaging, regarding tests we use clinically, probably a lot of people are actually having surgery on tissues that are not causing their symptoms because we simply just don't know where the, where the symptoms are coming from. And what about hypotheses surrounding shoulder special tests? So there's been a whole battery of shoulder special tests that have been um, recommended for clinicians to perform. These tests have been designed primarily on, um, on anatomical bases that in a particular position you might be contracting or compressing a particular tissue. Uh, you might be stretching a particular tissue. The problem with the special tests are, are that all the, all the tissues around the shoulder are innovated. They all have a nerve supply. And that we're testing multiple structures per test. And the moment you're testing more than one structure, it's very difficult to know what actual structure you are, you are implicating. So the first thing that we've got is that the special tests are testing multiple structures. So we're not knowing exactly what we're testing. And the other problem is the, the idea of the special tests are that they are designed to either rule in a particular structure or rule out a particular structure. So the way that evidence-based practice is formulated is that when you've got a clinical test that's positive, you need to compare it to a diagnostic test. The gold standard tests in orthopedics are going to be MRI, ultrasound, x-ray, or observation of structural failure during an arthroscopic procedure. The assumption here is that the observation of tissue damage is where the symptoms are coming from. So we compare a test for supraspinatus, clinical test, against a finding of an ultrasound that the supraspinatus is, is damaged or torn partially or comp completely. But as I mentioned earlier, there's been now a wealth of studies published that show there's a very poor correlation between imaging findings and where symptoms are coming from. So we don't actually have a gold standard reference test to compare the, the clinical tests against. And so, in all honesty, the special tests are not special at all. We don't have a, a gold standard to, to compare them against. So the special tests, we could say, are simply tests that might provoke symptoms, but you'd be a very brave person to actually say you know where those symptoms are coming from. There's been an assumption for a long time that if you see something different on imaging, it might explain where the symptoms are coming from. So we know that up to 96% of people who have no symptoms at all, who have an ultrasound scan, might have findings such as bursal thickening, tendinopathy, partial thickness tears, full thickness tears, labral damage. Um, and so there's been an assumption for a long time that if you see a change on imaging, it explains symptoms but it clearly doesn't. And you're probably more likely to have a change in imaging if you're asymptomatic as if you are symptomatic. The implication of that's quite serious because what it means is 
that people who uh, have positive clinical tests, such as the orthopedic tests we talked about before, and positive imaging findings, such as a tear, might be recommended that surgery is a good option for them. And in many cases, it might be. But the problem is if you're making clinical decisions based on, on imaging that can't really tell us where the symptoms are coming from, then a lot of people, maybe 50% of people, will be having operations on tissues that are not causing their symptoms. So imaging is wonderful to know there's no fracture, no dislocation, no sinister pathology such as an osteosarcoma, but imaging in many people can't really tell us if you see a, a labral tear or if you see a rotator cuff tear, partial or full thickness, that with certainty we know the symptoms are coming from those structures. Can you elaborate more on shoulder surgery? Yeah, and it's wonderful that we have such specialized clinicians who are able to perform shoulder surgery to repair labrums, to repair rotator cuffs. And, and there's, shoulder surgery is absolutely vital for many patients. And I think, though, there may be, we need possibly more joined up communication between physical therapists, physiotherapists, and surgeons, and also more joined up communication with patients. If we're really putting patients at the center of the journey, as we're supposed to, as we're encouraged to, it really, we really need to be using careful language with our patients. We need to be telling patients, or the surgeons need to be telling patients that the tears may be causing symptoms, but they may not be causing symptoms. That if we look carefully at the research evidence, there's an equal chance of getting better with an exercise-based program for people who are diagnosed with impingement, for people who are diagnosed with partial thickness tears that are atraumatic and full thickness tears that are atraumatic as they would with surgery. So we need to be telling patients that they need not to worry about the tear in many cases, that it's something that happens but doesn't necessarily cause symptoms, that exercise-based approaches are just as effective as surgical-based approaches for many conditions, and that if a conservative-based treatment, an exercise-based treatment, a non-surgical treatment approach isn't helpful, then of course then surgery is a very appropriate procedure to consider, but not to rush to it just because of what the imaging identified in people without trauma. And what about hypotheses surrounding posture and shoulder pain? A lot of the research we've done would challenge some of the postural theory, suggesting that maybe there isn't one ideal posture, that posture has a wide variance, and we need to be very careful about telling patients it's their posture. We also have to be very careful about assuming some of the muscle imbalance theories that have been uh, proposed in the literature Maybe the, the, the validity of some of those theories are maybe not as certain as, as we would like. Certainly research we've done and systematic reviews we've done would challenge that there is an ideal scapular position in conditions such as impingement. A lot of the research that we have published would challenge some of the muscle imbalance theories. It would challenge the concept there is a one normal ideal posture. I'm not saying for a minute that posture is not involved. It certainly is in many patients, but maybe we need different ways of testing it other than just visual observation of posture and certain muscle imbalance tests. Do you think that we should abandon the traditional shoulder special tests and assessments? No, the shoulder, shoulder special tests have a place. I don't think they're special tests. I just think they are tests that reproduce symptoms. And in most cases, the way I tend to work is seeking from the patient activities or movements or postures 
functional activities that they're having trouble with and then applying a series of assessment procedures to that to see if I can uh, reduce the impact of those procedures. But if a patient isn't sure where the symptoms are coming from, then there is a place that the, the so-called special tests could actually reproduce symptoms. But if people are using the special tests to clinically reason where the symptoms are coming from, or even combinations of special tests to clinically reason where the symptoms are coming from, based on what we were talking about before, that's highly uncertain that that's possible to do. So special tests have a place, they're not special, they're symptom reproduction tests, and, and seeing them beyond that is probably giving them too much credit. I, uh, however, wouldn't say necessarily we need to abandon them, but maybe we need to just to understand the value or the reduced value that they might have in clinical examination. Can you explain your shoulder symptom modification procedure and how you incorporate it into an assessment? I came up with a, a system that I use clinically that probably takes about five minutes of time that looks at the relationship between a person's posture, whether it's their spinal posture, their shoulder blade, their scapular posture, uh, relationships potentially between the humeral head and the glenoid fossa, although I'm not quite certain that the tests, even though they're called those things, actually do what I'm describing them as, but just a series of clinical procedures that takes the patient's symptoms, whether it's pain during a push-up, pain lifting the arm, pain tucking the shirt in behind their back, pain during a throw, pain during a swimming action, to see if I can modify, reduce the impact of those symptoms, whether it's pain, a feeling of instability, a feeling of stiffness. And sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't work at all. We know that the procedure is reliable, we've recently published on that, but I actually don't know if it's valid in the sense that if I find something with one of these tests and then introduce that into treatment, we actually don't know if it makes any long-term difference to outcome over another approach with a patient. So that's something more research needs to determine. But what's important to emphasize is that the shoulder symptom modification procedure which looks at the variables I mentioned a minute ago, is very rarely a standalone procedure. As I mentioned, the research evidence suggests that an exercise, a graduated exercise program, is probably the most effective, cost-effective, clinically effective way of treating patients with shoulder problems. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always work completely, and therefore we have to have other procedures such as injections and surgery. But the shoulder symptom modification procedure may support, in some cases, an exercise-based approach for people with shoulder problems. So does the shoulder symptom modification procedure drive your management decisions? Yes, so if the patient tells me that one of the techniques of the shoulder symptom modification procedure or a combination of techniques has reduced their symptoms in a, to a level that's meaningful for the patient, then I will use whatever I find as an assessment as treatment. But as I mentioned, it's, it's never really a standalone procedure. It will be embedded within other treatment approaches. Advice is critically important. Good ed patient education is important. Reducing the threat of how the patient's perceiving their symptoms is very important, but also, also exercise-based approach as well. So it, it sits within a, as a holistic as possible approach to managing patients. And how do you explain a shoulder issue to a patient who wants a specific diagnosis? 
I find that very difficult to do because more often than not, I can't identify the structure that's causing the patient's symptoms. We can say that the symptoms are felt in the area of the shoulder. It's possible, based on excluding other variables, that it may be not pain coming from the neck or the thoracic spine, that because maybe the, the way the patient has described the onset of their symptoms, maybe it's because of increasing load through the tissues, looking at the way the patient moves by reducing load, increasing load, it might implicate the rotator cuff tissues. And that's why I've published using the term rotator cuff related shoulder pain, because that to me indicates it could be muscle, it could be tendon, it could be capsular tissue, it could be bursal tissue. There's a whole lot of tissues that could be involved. If a patient pushes me for a specific diagnosis, I'll probably say I'm not capable of giving one, and I'll give the example that in back pain, we often don't know exactly what the tissue is that's causing the problem, and we use terms like non-specific low back pain, which is not really a great term to use, or, or mechanical back pain, and that's probably the same for the shoulder as well. There are some conditions that are diagnosable, such as frozen shoulder, but for the vast majority of conditions, it's probably, if we're honest, as surgeons and as physios, it's probably impossible to be certain exactly where the symptoms are coming from. What do you feel is the biggest mistake that clinicians make when dealing with the shoulder? I guess the biggest mistake any clinician can make with a patient is making the patient worry more about their problem. So using terminology such as it's your posture, it's the mass of acromion that's caused, it's ripping into your tendon, it's the tear that's causing your symptoms and you'll need surgery, otherwise the tear will get larger and it'll become inoperable. Physios who might say you've got terrible scapular dyskinesis, the scapula's unstable, that you've got this massive problem with your posture and muscle imbalance. So whenever we use language that frightens the patient, that's probably the biggest mistake that we can make. I know in the past you've mentioned the importance of the kinetic chain to the shoulder. Are there any specific kinetic chain factors that you assess that may influence the shoulder? I think it's naive for physiotherapists, for a patient who comes in with just a local shoulder problem, just to assume that just a local treatment will be the only thing that that patient needs. It's not how the body functions. So we know, uh, for example, in a tennis serve, that 50% of the energy is transferred from the lower limbs into the shoulder, and the shoulder only contributes 20% uh, of the force of a tennis serve. We know from research and on baseball pitches, if you've got a 25% deficit of energy transfer from the lower limb, the shoulder has to find 35% more power to pitch a baseball at the same speed. And I would challenge anybody who's doing an exercise program to ramp up the treadmill an extra 35% more than they currently run at to lift 35% more weight immediately than they're currently lifting because that would introduce overload into the tissues probably at a level that might cause symptomatic symptoms a bit later on. So the fact that the lower limb is so important in transferring energy into the shoulder, it would be naive for physios just to assume a local treatment is what every patient needs. So we need to consider the impact of the kinetic chain. We need to find ways of assessing in an individual patient 
the relevance of that kinetic chain in terms of shoulder function. And we need then to make sure that the range of movement, that the strength, the endurance of the lower limb and the ability to transfer energy into the shoulder is sufficient for that individual patient's sport or, or daily functional activity. And what are some psychosocial factors that contribute to shoulder outcomes? So we've contributed to uh, the research knowledge in this area. And here I must acknowledge the work of Rachel Chester, who was a PhD student, I co-supervised her PhD. And she did an absolutely wonderful study looking at over a thousand people with shoulder symptoms and looking at what predicts good outcome at six weeks and six months, or what predicts outcome, good or bad. And what Rachel found in her study, there were very few physical factors that actually predict good outcome. And a patient's self-efficacy, their belief that they're going to get better is one of the biggest predictors of good outcome. Patients who have high numbers of comorbidities unfortunately don't do very well. Patients who have attained lower levels of education don't do very well. We know that from physiotherapy research, but we also know from surgical studies that very similar variables such as patients' number of comorbidities, uh, level of education, are bigger predictors of outcome than things like rotator cuff tears, the size of the tear, the amount of tendon retraction. We know very sadly that about 50% of people don't understand the health messages and advice we're giving them. So we have to spend a lot of time ensuring that our patients understand what we're talking about, understand the advice we're giving, why we're giving it. So we need the patients to reflect back to us what they've understood, what they haven't understood from our messages, and spend time working on that to try and improve outcomes from a psychosocial point of view than maybe from our concerns always about biomechanical variables. And of course they're important, but maybe they're not quite as important, or maybe the importance of the psychosocial factors, which we haven't always considered, need to be given as much or maybe even more priority. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Learned lots, and again, thanks to Functional Media and Jeremy Lewis. You can find the full original discussion on this podcast blurb or via fxnlmedia.com. If you want to hear Dr. Lewis talk all things shoulder pathology, make sure you get along to the Sports Medicine Australia Conference in Langkawi, Malaysia, 25th to 28th of October of this year. Again, I'll put the link of that in the podcast notes for you. I hope you can make today a great day full of physical activity and healthy eating. 